Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. The Bible tells us to be diligent to present ourselves approved to God as workmen, as workwomen, who do not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. That's Paul's admonition to Timothy. We're to know our Bibles because the Bible is the tool that the Spirit of God uses to bring people to conversion. And then once they meet Christ, to grow them in the faith. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad we can be together. And if you have a question that you'd like to ask as you've been studying God's Word or a challenge in your personal life that you would like biblical counsel on. Pick up the phone and call us. Again, the number locally is 843-525-1859, 525-1859, or our toll-free number for our internet listeners is 877, the call letters of the station, WAGP 980, WAGP 980. That's the 877 number, or you can email us here directly into the studio, as many people do each week. And the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP dot net. And we'll do our best by the grace of God to respond to questions that you have. Rick, as always, it's good to be here. And I think we have some callers already on the line. So let's go to the first one. Indeed we do. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, thanks uh, for calling. Go ahead. Uh, I, I was always curious about a certain passage of Scripture and, and how Jesus responded to the Gentile woman who was asking for his help. And he, he said, well, you know, it's not right for for God to help, you know, or give his food to the dogs. And, and how she responded, even the dogs are able to eat the crumbs from their master's table. I, I never understood why Jesus responded to her in, in that manner, being who he was. Well, it's a good question. And, of course, um the term dog there is an interesting Greek word. There's a couple of different words that are used in Koine Greek. Koine is the word for common, and God wrote the Bible in Koine Greek, common Greek, which was really the the language of the people, and he did it for a reason because God's desire is to communicate. And it's not the word for a, a wild pariah dog, but what you would find in uh, you know a, a nice. Uh, home, a lapdog, so to speak. And, and of course, the uh, Jews referred to uh, the Gentiles in a derogatory way as dogs, as scum, we might say in modern terminology. But the Lord Jesus saw the faith of the Syrophoenician woman, and he saw the fact that she was a woman who believed that the blessings that God had given to the Jews could also transfer to the Gentiles. And really, that's what God had revealed in the Old Testament, that though God was working uh, largely through the nation of Israel, they were his chosen people, uh, their ministry was not to be uh, exclusive. They were to be a light to the nations, as Isaiah the prophet said. And she understood this, and she responded in in faith and uses a a parabolic expression of sorts, and the Lord Jesus sees her faith and commends her for it. 
So great faith uh, is something that always pleases the Lord God. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick, and uh, we'll keep moving here. All right, indeed. 525-1859, toll free 877-WAGP980. If you have a question or you can always email us. Uh, as uh, this person has, they would like to know, actually, it's uh, their six-year-old child would like to know, uh, what language did Adam and Eve speak? Well, my Hebrew uh, professor at Dallas Seminary used to tell me Hebrew. Uh, he always said that, well, that's God's language. And uh, the fact is, is that language is developed, of course, uh, through the course of time. Uh, some would say, like he would jokingly, well, originally it was all Hebrew, and then at the Tower of Babel, God divided up the languages of the world, and he gave us the rest of the languages that we have today. The fact is, the Bible doesn't tell us. So, um, it, and of course, uh, uh, that particular Hebrew prof, who's uh, considered even to this day one of the great Hebrew scholars who's still alive, always said it jokingly. Uh, and of course, some of our Greek professors would say just the opposite, but nonetheless, the Bible doesn't say, and so where the Bible is not dogmatic, neither can we be, but, but it raises a good question, uh, that children have all kinds and types of questions about God, about the Bible, and there's a curiosity level and an innocence where they're so teachable and so humble. They're not afraid to ask a question in fear of what people might think of them. And and in that sense, we're called to be childlike, uh, not childish, but childlike. And uh, God honors that kind of spirit that you often see in children. And as parents, we want to be well-equipped to help them, to teach them, to carry them uh, to the Lord, and not just to meet Christ and salvation, but to really grow and mature and become productive people. That's one of our ministries at Community Bible Church is the Iwana ministry, because oftentimes parents will ask, well, you know, how do I really teach my kids day in and day out? And of course, the starting place is to be in the scripture yourself, because through your own personal quiet time, God will be speaking to you, and you will be amazed at how often God will use what he showed you that day to teach uh your child in response to a question they may ask, but also there needs to be some concerted, well-thought-through questions uh, and answers that we can give our kids, and the Awana ministry puts in the hands of parents a tool in which to do that. So take advantage of that. Go online, and you can get details at cbcbuford.org. Let's go to the next uh, caller who's waiting. Thank you for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Carl and Rick. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. Carl, I'm sorry I'm in the car, and I can't give you the citation, although I'm sure you're familiar with it. But one of the Gospels tells us that uh, right before Judas betrayed Jesus, that Satan entered Judas. And we already know that Judas was a thief, so we already know that he's a a bad guy or whatever. And I wonder why Satan had to enter him and what that means. Thank you. Well, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Uh, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things to his hand and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and so forth. So this is John 13 that I'm reading where you have, uh, among the other synoptic gospels, a record of the betrayal and all the events that, that led up to that betrayal. And what it does say is that 
during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So the the, the thought, the um, idea to betray the son of God, and it's well and very carefully worded here from the original Greek in the New American Standard, uh, came from the evil one. And he is, of course, uh, the father of lies. He is... uh, a liar from the beginning, Jesus said. Every time he opens his mouth, he's a, he's a liar. And he had lied to Judas, and Judas had bit on that lie. And so while Judas was indeed an unbeliever, of course, he, he had never come to faith. And even this passage of Scripture indicates that a little bit later on in the text when Jesus gets up and he washes the feet of the disciples, and Peter takes issue that he should wash his feet as the Lord and and Jesus said, well, you know, if I have, uh, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me, no participation, no fellowship. And he said, well, then not just my feet, you know, you can wash my head and my hands. And and Jesus said, no, he was washed, uh, doesn't need to be washed again. He only needs to have his feet cleaned. And then he goes on and he says that not all of you are clean for he knew the one who is betraying him for this reason. He said, not all of you are clean. And so Jesus is speaking as well in symbolic terms. And, and that aspect of uh, his teaching, he said, they wouldn't get that night, but they would understand later on. And it's the principle, of course, once saved, always saved. Once bathed, always bathed. That once we've been saved, we've had salvation's bath. But as we walk through this world, our feet sometimes get dirty. But Judas had never had that bath. And when people repressed truth, and Judas had, he had walked in the presence of God Almighty for three years. He had seen and witnessed the miracles. He had heard the very word of God spoken. Every word Jesus spoke was the word of God because it came from the lips of God. He heard all that. Great revelation did nothing with it, suppressed it. And so he really opened himself up to the evil one. And Satan was able to... Uh, give him this great temptation. He was not by any means controlled by the devil. He made some choices of his own. But when we choose to reject God and reject his revelation and reject his truth, then we find ourselves uh, really opening ourselves up to undue undue temptation. Um, and we're reminded of that truth in, in the Lord's prayer as it's often called or the model prayer. So great question. Uh, let's go to the next one. All right. We've got another live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. I just have a question. Um, Pastor Brogy, if you have any thoughts on the anchor Bible, I received, uh, two commentaries, one on the book of John by Robert E. Brown and one on the book of Hebrews by George Wesley Buchanan. But if these are any good to read, I don't know. If you have a better suggestion, I would like to hear it. Uh, You received one on the book of Hebrews, and what was the other book? The Gospel of John. John. Well, the Anchor Bible is not a good commentary. The Anchor Bible is basically, as you know, it's a set of commentaries interfacing with the with uh, with God's word, uh, the problem was it was done by moderate to liberal people, uh, most of whom who did not believe in the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Bible. 
So all the way through it, you have a very liberal slant. Uh, You will see the miracles denied or twisted, or uh, they will make statements disagreeing with the authors of the New Testament, saying that this was a prejudicial statement. Very, very liberal commentary. So, you know, I always tell people, when you listen to a Bible teacher, when you read a commentary, you want to find someone first who has met Christ as Savior because First uh, Corinthians 2.15 says, A natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So it doesn't matter whether we went to Harvard or Yale Divinity School, as many of those guys did. doesn't matter how many PhDs are behind their name. If they don't know Christ, then the newest Christian has more insight into the Word of God than they do. So they're not able to comprehend the Scripture. So you always look first for someone who's born again, and two, someone who, you know, has grown and matured in the expression of their spiritual gift of teaching or pastor teacher. So there's so many good commentaries out there. Um, I would just uh, bypass uh, anything in the Anchor Bible. It's a waste of time, waste of money. Uh, If you wanted to read a good commentary in the Gospel of John, D.A. Carson did an excellent commentary on John's Gospel. John MacArthur has a series on the New Testament. He's written one on the Gospel of John. Uh, I have about 25 commentaries in the Gospel of John, but those would be two that I would suggest. Book of Hebrews, um, F.F. Bruce has an excellent one. Understand he has uh, two commentaries on Hebrews, one that is a what's called a critical commentary that is just filled with the Greek New Testament. If you don't read Greek, it will be very frustrating to you. And then there's a non-Greek one. So that's the one you want to get if you go online. Or if you go to half.com, the book side of eBay, and you uh, typed in D.A. Carson John or F.F. Bruce Hebrews or uh, any number of good, you know, conservative commentaries, then uh, you'll find them used because those have been around for a long time. And instead of paying 50 bucks at a bookstore, you probably buy them for $5 or or less. Uh, The the prices drop significantly. One good uh, maybe book to consider purchasing would be uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, uh, the BKC. Now, this is a two-volume work on the whole of the Bible. Uh, so there's an edition in the Old Testament, and there's an edition in the New Testament called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Now, obviously, one-volume commentaries are very limited. Uh, you know, like in Romans, there might be 30 pages on the book of Romans. Uh, you know, I have multi-volume commentaries by one author, say, on the book of Romans. So it's going to be limited, but what will be helpful is they often deal with difficult texts, and then in the back of each book, and they cover all 66 books of the Bible, is there's a bibliography of conservative works done in the last 200 years. And so that is a good starting place, I tell people, is they're looking for good works. Go to the bibliography at the end of each Uh, of uh, the uh, books that are addressed in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And then if you want to go further and really study in depth, that might might be a great thing to do. And let me just say, too, forget the Anchor Bible. Typically, when you have whole sets done, um, even in conservative realms, uh, there's, you know, one or two that are exceptional out of the whole set. So I might, I, very rarely do I ever buy a whole set of commentaries, like, um, you know, Calvin's commentaries, though I have the full set of Calvin's commentaries. 
uh, usually it takes a man a decade or more to write a really well thought through, carefully crafted, historically accurate, contextually precise commentary. So I have a friend, Daryl Bach, who is a professor at Dallas Seminary. He's written two commentaries in his life, one on Luke, which is about 900 pages long, and one on the Book of Acts. Uh, it took him 20 years to do those. And uh, they're most precise, very well done. Uh, so, you know, one, you want to ask, you know, what's the best commentary on John? You're not going to find it in a set. In a set, they might have, you know, five books that were exceptional out of the 27 New Testament books that they did. So that's where the BKC would be of great help to you. And I I might consider starting there. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Very good. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I've got a, a question for you. I do understand the context, but um, it, in uh, in Matthew, it's just in Mark as well, but in Matthew, uh, um, I believe it's uh, 1229, um, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he'll plunder his house? And I know I've read the story coming in and going out, but is, is the strong man that is being talked about here, is that Satan? I'm, I'm just not, I'm not sure how this applies. I mean, yeah. I've tried my best here, but I've got to ask for help. Well, let me just back up just a little bit uh, to, to lay the context, because not everyone listening has the benefit and that you're familiar with this, with, with this passage of Scripture. If you remember, the context was an occasion when Jesus did a, a triple miracle. Uh, there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb. So he's demon-possessed, he's blind, he's dumb, he healed him, so that the dumb man spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Uh, It's a good question, uh, because the son of David, uh, the Messiah, a term used of Messiah, among other things, he would make the uh, blind to see and the deaf to hear. Uh, Isaiah the prophet speaks of specific kinds of miracles Messiah would do. There were certain individuals that God used, like Elijah and Elisha, to uh, do miracles uh, during their time of ministry, much like he did with Moses, and just a few scattered places in the Bible where uh, some men of God in the Old Testament realm do miracles, but there were some that were unique to the son of David. And so when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So they're saying the power that is at work in him is not uh, the Lord God, but Beelzebub. And knowing their thoughts, because Jesus is omniscient, he can read minds. Any kingdom, he says, divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself cannot stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? He's saying what you're saying isn't even logical because you got, you know, the devil working against himself. And if I, by Beelzebul, as they claimed, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they'll be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, which is what he did, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, just as the prophets of the Old Testament predicted would happen when Messiah came, that he would come in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. So he, he's using basically a, um, a, a statement of 
experience from the day. When he speaks of, you know, breaking into someone's house, you first have to deal with the head of the house or the strong man or the guard or whatever the situation may be before you can go in and plunder his property. And, of course, Jesus is, you know, using this illustration from common life to say, listen, as the son of man, I have greater power than the the devil, who you could call by application and analogy the strong man. I have to deal with him uh, to be able to enter into his realm. And so uh, it's an amazing miracle. It's an amazing setting. It's an amazing day. And, of course, these people are are really guilty of about to commit an, an unpardonable sin, as Jesus will go on to say, because he said, listen, all kinds of blasphemy can be forgiven, you know, among men. You can be forgiven of blasphemy against the Son of God. You can be forgiven against blasphemy against God the Father. But they were now blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And that was an unforgivable sin because by the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything was confirmed. And so when they rejected the witness of God the Father, well, then the witness of God the Son was left. And then when they rejected the witness of God the Son, then the only member of the Trinity they could still witness to their hearts was God the Holy Spirit. And then when they said, well, this is not God the Holy Spirit at work, though plainly it was, and they should have known it because they knew what the Old Testament scriptures said concerning the son of David, and even the crowds can read that, then they were rejecting the only possible witness left to them, and they were about ready to commit an unpardonable sin for which there would be no hope for them. Tragic, tragic situation. Good question. Let's let's go to the next one. Rick, I know they're piling up here, but we'll try to go through as many as we can. All right. Indeed, uh, we do have uh, another couple of people that have called in, so we're going to call them back. But in the meantime, uh, we had a question left over from the previous Bible line. If a Christian is going to live in a country where Christians are not allowed to attend church, so they go to a home study instead, what should that Christian do with their tithe? Well, that's a good question. Um, You know, the tithe belongs to the local church, the New Testament teaches. And if you're in a country where there is no, um, you know, established church, then the church typically, you know, goes underground. So, you know, it might be that your home fellowship with a group of other families becomes a local assembly and you guys pull your funds and you use it to fund the work of the kingdom in that country as best you can. And again, there are countries like, you know, I'm thinking of Saudi Arabia right offhand. We have some friends there right now where, you know, it's in a very oppressive country. Here the United States, you know, came in and helped that country uh, in the early 90s under the first Arab war to defend, you know, some of their freedoms. But they certainly don't acknowledge uh, the freedoms that we acknowledge in this great nation of ours. And so it's against the law. Uh, for Christians to publicly worship. It's against the law for Christians to try to convert someone. There are two Campus Crusade for Christ staff members who I think have been in prison now 11 years in Saudi Arabia because they led some Muslims to Christ. It's a very oppressive country. So the church there meets underground. Uh, They meet at homes. Uh, Some people, because the church is so careful, uh, wanting to be as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove, uh, they're very careful who they tell, 
in terms of when they meet and where they meet and how they meet. And so sometimes in the same city, there can be a number of house churches that are functioning and people don't know about them, even Christian people. Uh, so with all that said, um, you know, if there's not a, a an avenue in which to give, then then you give it maybe to the uh, the, the church, uh, another Bible-believing church that you respect and honor and send it there. Um, but it belongs to the local church, your tithe. And so I would, I would start there and, uh, use it wisely. Uh, if there's opportunity to invest in that country, then consider that if there's some, you know, home fellowship or home church, they're buying Bibles or giving them out, whatever it might be, uh, then, then there might be an opportunity in a local church in that country. But if not, then give it to a home church in America, uh, that is Christ centered in God honoring and Bible believing. All right. Very good. 525-1859. Toll free 877-WAGP980. That's uh, 924-7980. Or email us at tbl at net. as has this listener. They write, um, I was divorced from my ex-wife in 2006. The woman I married was someone I had committed adultery with. I married this woman and we are now Christians and know that we reap what we sow. My question is, is our marriage acknowledged by God? I also lost my child in a car accident a year ago. Was this part of my punishment for the wrong I have done? Well, it's a, it's a good question and one that you should be asking. It sounds like you're, you're carrying certainly a lot of, a lot of guilt. And sometimes uh, people feel guilty because they are guilty and they've not dealt with that guilt in an honest way before God. And obviously, when you broke your marriage covenant, you got involved with uh, another person and began commit adultery with this woman, and you abandoned your Christian vows and married, you know, this woman that you were having a relationship with. You, you did an evil thing, and I can't soften that. And certainly, you don't want to soften that in your own mind or heart. Uh, Jesus said, "To divorce your wife and marry another is to commit adultery." So you were committing adultery even before you married this person. And uh, so the question becomes very often, well, what do you do when you've been down this road? Remember a man years ago coming to me and he began to read what Jesus said on the subject of divorce. And he said, you know, pastor, I divorced my first wife. I was unfaithful to her, married another woman. Um, now, you know, we have four kids together. I know what Jesus said. I can't twist or soften what he said. Uh, even people who take adultery as a, um, a means in which to break a marriage bond for the innocent party. He, he knew he didn't even have that. I don't take the passage to refer to that, but uh, even he didn't have that to lean back on and he wanted to know, you know, what should I do? And I said, well, listen, you, you can't unscramble eggs and God would not want you now to divorce your second wife and, you know, the four children that you have together with them. And you can't go back to your first wife. That's forbidden according to Deuteronomy 24, but you do need to deal honestly with your sin if you haven't. And so the scripture teaches that as believers, you know, we're to confess our sin. He who covers his sin will not prosper, but he who, you know, um, confesses and forsakes it will find mercy with the Lord. And so God calls us to deal honestly with him as his people. Now, I don't know if you're a Christian or not when you did this thing, 
Um, certainly a Christian has the capacity to commit any kind of sin, though a Christian does have a, a new heart and a new overall direction in life. But I've seen Christians do awful things and with deep regret later on. But still, you need to lift that cloud. And I hear Christians all the time rationalize about their ex and how God led them to this new person and this and that. And God's will never contradicts his word. And you just need to be honest before God and ask for his forgiveness and receive it. And to claim 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us of all, A-double-L, all unrighteousness. I can't say that, you know, this car accident in which you lost this child was from the hand of God. I, you know, God deals with us for our own sin. But it is true that sometimes when we are out of fellowship with God, that the protective hand of God, that God wants to extend to our life can be lifted. Uh, because of choices that we have made. And I've seen Christians out of fellowship with God make incredibly foolish decisions that would have been avoided and decisions that sometimes have great consequence on their family. You know, someone starts drinking and they're out drinking out of fellowship with God and they get in a car accident and their child's dead. Let's just say that for a scenario. And I'm thinking of a real life example. And that happened. Well, did God do it? Well, no, God didn't do it, but you're out of fellowship with God and you were making some very foolish decisions to even take a drop of alcohol. I'm so tired and weary of these Christians now in our country that are advocating for Christians to freely use alcohol. But when you make decisions, sometimes you have to live with the consequences of them. And so, you know, deal with your sin of adultery uh, in divorce and totally cleanly. And if you've not gone even back to your first wife whom you cheated on and asked her for forgiveness, again, you can't unscramble eggs, but you need to deal honestly. You say, what if she doesn't forgive me? Well, you've done your part. He, Romans 12 says, if possible, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Uh, sometimes you can go humbly, sincerely, and ask someone for forgiveness, and they won't release you. Well, if you've gone in humility and you've taken responsibility for your part, then you've done what, what, what God has called you to do. But certainly you don't want God's hand of blessing to pass you over because of rebellion in your heart. And, and I know just the way I'm speaking right now, some people would take objection to, and that's because we live in a day where we have such a fluffy view of God, where we no longer really fear the Lord God. You know, we we get these guys, you know, on the radio and on television and uh, that are just obnoxious to me because they, they really don't fear God as they should. And they're making statements about God and about, you know, our lifestyle and all under the name of freedom uh, that are just wrong. And God is to be revered. He's not to be feared by the believer in terms of punishment because perfect love casts out all fear. But God is a divine disciplinarian. And sometimes, too, when our hand is, when God's hand is taken off of us through disobedience, we suffer consequences. We were just talking this past Sunday. The subject of the sermon is, is it okay to be gay? And, of course, the answer is no. But one of the things that we were dealing with was Lot. And when Lot was uh, 
in the process with Abraham of looking over a piece of property and deciding which piece of property he would want, and Abraham gave him the choice. He chose the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he likened it to the Garden of the Lord. He had never seen the Garden of Eden, obviously, but he had heard the stories that had come down from generation to generation that Adam told to to Abel and Cain and Cain told to his offspring and Adam told to his daughters and on it came down and no one could over exaggerate the stories because it was an absolutely perfect place. And so having heard all the stories of the Garden of Eden, he looked at this piece of property, he says, it's like the Garden of the Lord, it's like the land of Egypt. And because of Abraham's disobedience to not really seek the Lord, and he got out of fellowship with the Lord and did a little sojourn down there in Egypt, which becomes in the Bible an illustration or a type of the world, of worldliness. Um, That's how it's used in Scripture. That's how God describes Egypt, as worldliness. Um, Because of his sojourn down there, Lot got some worldliness in his heart, made some very foolish decisions as a result, and was willing to go and live in a place like Sodom and Gomorrah because it was attractive to his carnal nature. And that's unfortunate. But Abraham couldn't erase that consequence. Now he pleaded for his nephew and for his life when three angels, the angel of the Lord and two ordinary angels came and revealed to Abraham that God was going to destroy the place. And Abraham cares about Lot. And Lot is, a, according to the New Testament, a believer. He's a righteous man. But he was not one who invested his life well, and it's sad. So you can't erase some consequences, and neither should we downplay the implications of our living in sin, because it can have huge ramifications when God is not directing us, protecting us, guarding us, as he would because of choices that we make when we tear our hand out of God's hand. Mm. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Our next uh, listener is from Beaverdale, Pennsylvania, and they write, Concerning unsaved people, are we not to befriend them? I have a few friends that are not saved. My only motive is to lead them to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. However, in last Sunday's sermon, our preacher seemed to be indicating that God does not send these people for us to befriend. I was wondering about your thoughts on this matter. Well, you know, in Matthew 11, we're still in Matthew from our last caller. Um, In Matthew 11, in verse 19, just the chapter before, uh, it, it tells us that, um, the son of man came eating and drinking and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So Jesus is accused of other things of being a friend of sinners, a friend of tax gatherers and, and sinners. Uh, earlier in that gospel in Matthew nine, it says, and it happened that as he was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, tax collectors were a hated group of people. They uh, collected uh, taxes as people traveled from one region to another. And their responsibility under um, you know Roman law was to assess the value, the custom of a piece of property. So if it came through, say, Galilee, where Herod was... Uh, 
overseeing and Matthew was from that area, Matthew or other tax collectors like him would assess the value of the goods and and then apply the proper taxes uh, that would go to Herod and back in turn to Rome. The problem was is that there was a lot of flexibility given to them, uh, something that was worth $25 in American terms. Uh, they said it was worth 50 And so they were known basically for ripping folks off. They were hated by them. You, you just didn't have much recourse because they had the power of Rome behind them. And they would collect more than uh, the property was really to be assessed at. And so they were hated people. And so when he's at this house, there's tax gatherers and sinners that were dining with Jesus and his disciples. So he ate with them. He didn't shun them. He he wanted to reach them. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax gatherers and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. And he quotes here from the book of uh, Hosea, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And of course, when he says this to the Pharisees, he was not saying that they were righteous. He was just saying, in essence, they don't see their problem. Uh, like these tax collectors and sinners did. Uh, Those folks were often attracted to Christ because he had a message of how they could be forgiven. They knew that their lives were uh, so awful that unless God could somehow show them mercy, they didn't stand a chance. Where the Pharisees, who were highly religious people, had become very self-righteous and had put their faith and confidence in those deeds and things that they had done, so they didn't see their need for a doctor, for a savior. Uh, So Jesus was a friend of sinners, and so we should be. And so while there is a balance that's taught in the Bible, God says, come out from them and be separate. There is uh, to be a separation from sin, but not from sinners. Now, there is to be a separation, say, from congregations that don't represent God's word. God tells us we're not to join churches like that. So I'm not dismissing that when I say that. But listen, uh, the only reason those of us who hear my voice this morning know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it was either because you were a biological conversion, and by that I mean you grew up in a Christian home where your parents who loved you witnessed to you and you were one to Christ, or like me, you were not raised in a family of born-again Christians, but someone loved you enough to confront you with the claims of Jesus Christ. That assumes that there was some avenue, some vehicle in which they could get into your life, whether they befriended you and hung around you and did things with you or invited you into their family uh, gatherings, or whether it was something like the woman at the well, where Jesus just took an opportunity in a short uh, couple of minutes of time and turned the conversation to spiritual things and shared the plan of salvation. You don't always have to build these deep, long-abiding friendships with people in order to win them to Christ. Very often, they're like the woman at the well, where you only have a couple of minutes, and there's an opportunity to win someone to the Lord. I I just saw 
met with someone last week and uh, I asked her how she came to the church. She said, well, pastor, you and your wife were in Olive Garden and, and you invited me. I said, oh, you, did you wait on us? And so a conversation kind of pursued from there. And this dear woman, you know, has now been saved out of a drug and alcohol background. Now, I, we didn't build a deep friendship with her. We we just reached out and we're eating in Olive Garden. By the way, do you go to church anywhere? And it went from there. And we gave her one of our community Bible church cards, a business size card, and had a map on it and everything she needed to know. And she came and now she met Christ and she's growing and her life is changing. Other people, I think of a, a guy in, our, in my neighborhood that my wife and I tried to reach and we'd go on walks in the neighborhood and we'd invite him to church and or we'd turn the conversation to spiritual things and it would immediately reverse. There was no openness. But then with time, uh, there were occasions when we, we, we did a few things with him, not where our Christianity or our convictions were in any way compromised, but we built a little bit of a friendship. And then when a crisis came into that individual's life, there was an open door all of a sudden, a receptivity uh, for us to speak and to share. And he was one to Christ and is a member of our church today. So again, God uses different things. But certainly, we should all be involved in this process of evangelism. And so don't confuse contact with the world with contamination from the world. God doesn't call you to compromise your values. And I, you know, I'll hear people even use the text I just read, and Jesus was with, you know, sinners, and he, he was, you know, drinking and hooting it up with them. And there's some guys in our state right now that just, they make me angry when I hear them preach. And some of the things they accused Jesus of, this guy, Perry Noble, it's, he's just unbelievable. And there are so many Christians who have absolutely no discernment whatsoever, who know nothing of scripture. And they're buying into some of this garbage that some guys like him are teaching. Listen, um, we, we need to be really alert to the day that we're living in, but we need to be reaching out to people, loving people and sinners who need forgiveness because we're all sinners and we're all in need of a Savior. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or you can always email us at tbl at net. Our next listener is from Naples, Maine, and uh, they write, I'm confused by the apparent contradiction between Scripture referencing election, such as Romans nine eleven and scripture regarding God's desire that none should perish. Would you please help me resolve what I know is not truly contradiction? I strongly believe that Jesus' atonement was not limited, but I get caught on these sections in study Bibles that say God only chooses some for salvation. How can they teach this when we have verses like 1 Timothy 2.4 and 1 John 2.2? 2? Well, it's a good question, and certainly... Uh, Not all Christians agree on the doctrine of election and how it will unfold. Uh, I will say this, that that most Christians, even in the history of the church, who uh, have embraced some aspects of Calvinism, and Calvinism is certainly, uh, it's it's more than just five points, what's summarized often in the, the, the acrostic tulip for, you know, total depravity, Unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Uh, that, that's just one aspect of of uh, Calvinism in terms of the doctrine of salvation. 
Uh, there are whole hosts of issues as it relates to every realm of theology, whether it's the doctrine of the church or the doctrine of end times. And, and they're really inseparable because they play off of one another. In Calvin's view of the church, uh, and what the church was and what Israel was influenced a lot of his thinking in other realms of theology. Uh, now, you mentioned here limited atonement. I don't even think John Calvin held to limited atonement. In fact, I think I can prove that to you from his own commentaries that John Calvin didn't. Now, many of his followers do today, but I don't think Calvin did. But you uh, quote a couple of uh, texts, and let me just define some terms here. And not everybody maybe listening is aware of these terms, but the the doctrine of limited atonement, sometimes it's called a particular atonement, says that Jesus' death was limited. That is, that he died for a particular group of people. That Jesus didn't die for everyone, but that Jesus died, quote-unquote, just for the elect, Uh, just for those who would be saved. And very often they'll use some verses that, you know, at first glance, um, they might come to that conclusion. But again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So they'll take a verse like, um, turning here to John's Gospel, uh, where Jesus said, "'Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep.'" So he, he, he talks about how he lays his life down for his sheep. And they'll say, well, you see, there it is. Jesus didn't die for all people. He, he died for his sheep, for those who would believe, um, for the elect. And they confuse passages that deal with the intent of the atonement with other passages that deal with the extent of the atonement. Obviously, when the Lord Jesus went to the cross, because he's omniscient, God knows everything. He knew that not everyone would respond to the gospel. And he made that very clear in the Sermon on the Mount, that broad is the gate, wide is the road that leads to destruction, and many are on it. Narrow is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to life, and few are those that find it. So I'm sure when he thought about the cross, and even as he probably hung on the cross, that his heart ultimately was certainly towards those whom he knew would respond to his sacrificial death on their behalf. Um, I'm sure what delighted him, the joy set before him, would be those who would believe and receive him as Lord. That doesn't mean that God didn't love the rest of the world. He did. He so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son. But there are passages that talk about how Christ, you know, died for the church and so forth, Ephesians 5 and and passages like this here in in John 10 that deal with the intent but not the extent of the atonement. And and two, some of the limited redemptionists would say that, well, when you say Jesus died for everyone, it leads to universalism. No, No, it doesn't. Because the atonement, the death of Jesus, the sinless, innocent blood that was shed, is not only a basis of forgiveness for those who believe, it also becomes a basis of condemnation for those who do not believe. No one in the final judgment will be able to say, well, Jesus didn't make a provision for me. Even if I wanted to believe, it wouldn't have done any good. No, his death also becomes a basis of their condemnation, which is why you have verses like, he that believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides upon him. Now, you mentioned a couple of verses here. I don't know if we have time to cover them all, but let me just turn to to a couple here. First Timothy 2. 
Uh, Paul says, I, I urge you uh, that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You say, well, how can they teach that the atonement of Christ was limited when it says in a verse like this, he desires all men to be saved? How how does the limited redemptionist get around that? Well, they would say what he's referring to is, well, all kinds of men, not all people, but just all kinds of people, you know, kings and those who are in authority, but, but not all people. Well, again, even in the chapter prior to it, and remember, these chapter and verse divisions are are artificial. They're added almost a millennium after the Bible is completed. In the same book, in chapter 1, verse 15, it says, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, you tell me, is there anyone in this world who's not a sinner? Of course not. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. Yet Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. The other verse that you reference here, let me just turn there real fast to 1 John 2, 2. Again, you got a statement that, you know, you got to play mental gymnastics with to, to deny its plain teaching. My little children, I'm writing these things to you. What things? Uh, what he has just said about our need to keep uh, our known sin in the human heart confess that we can continue to have fellowship with God. I'm writing these things to you, not as a basis to sin, he says, but that you may not sin. But then he says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. That's what he says, for the sins of the whole world. Well, how do they get around that? It says that he, he, he died not just for those who are saved, but even for those who are lost. And again, just because he died for them doesn't mean they're saved. They still have to respond in faith and receive the gift of God. And that's one of the arguments in Romans 5 in the parallel between Adam and Christ. Just like through one act, Adam, it had a consequence on the entire human race even so, through one act, what the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, did, it has a consequence for the entire human race. The limited atonement person cannot consistently carry that illustration across the board when they say, well, Adam had an influence in the whole world, but Jesus only on the elect. Paul is making a parallel analogy between between the two. So they... um you know, again, play gymnastics and they say, well, when he says world here, some of them argue it geographically. Uh, you know, those elect who are in Asia Minor, not not just for us, but, but for all the elect in the world of Asia Minor, or some argue it ethnically, not just um, for those of us who have met Christ, but for Jews and Gentiles who are yet to meet Christ. Or, um, you know, they really end up twisting uh, the scripture, but again, world means world. Uh, it, later on in the book, he says, uh, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What does world there mean? World means everybody, everybody, everybody. When it says, for God so loved the world, 
that he gave his only begotten son. World means world. And so to come to a belief that Jesus did not die for all, but just for a limited group of people is to really, I think, mess with the scriptures. And it's to try to educate yourself into something that is not plainly taught in the word of God. And that's why most Christians don't believe it. And I know there's a class of Christians today. Sometimes they think they're just really smart that they've, you know, bought into this thing. Um, and I don't think they're smart. I think they're just wrong. And anyone just picking up the Bible and reading it uh, would never come to this conclusion. You have to be educated into this position. You wouldn't figure it out on your own, uh, just studying the Word of God. And so it has great implications. If Jesus didn't die for the whole world, and if you listen to limited redemptionists uh, preach or teach or even confront people, uh, they won't walk up to someone whom they've never met, and maybe the conversation turns to spiritual things and say, well, Christ died for you because they, in their thinking, don't know that until someone becomes a believer and they become a member of the elect because the elect in Scripture are those who have believed. You don't know a person is a member of the elect until they have believed. And so they'll use very carefully couched terms that Jesus died for those who would repent and believe. And everything's qualified and they don't believe you can walk up to someone and say, God loves you, Jesus died for you. Uh, Bill Bright faced this problem in in the um, 1970s. There was a a program that Campus Crusade for Christ did called Here's Life America. And they were trying to uh, take the gospel across these United States. And there was a little booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws that read, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And some of the Reformed brethren in the United States said, well, God doesn't have a wonderful plan for everyone's life just for just for the elect. And so he was willing, though he himself did not embrace it, to change the wording in the four spiritual laws so he could train a lot of Presbyterian and Reformed people. And they changed the wording to say, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, well, listen, I, I think God uh, offers a wonderful plan and potentially has a wonderful plan for everyone who believes. And I can look at anyone in the eye and say, God loves you. Christ shed his blood for you. And he wants to have a relationship with you. And so uh, the the elector, the whosoever wills, the non-elector, the whosoever wants. If you've never received Christ and you don't have assurance of salvation, uh, come this Thursday night to Community Bible Church, and we'll share with you at 715, child care provided, how you can have that relationship. We're out of time. Hope you have a great day. May the Lord bless you. Mm-hmm.